0: Uh. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. The only way to make good things is to make many things. My drawing professor said that to me on the first day of class during my freshman year at art school. And I'll be honest, I didn't understand it. Was he talking about drawings specifically, or was he talking about art? He said it over and over again over the course of a semester, and I eventually got it, but it took a while. One day he walked into the studio after lunch, and he strode up to a classmate of mine who was sitting amongst a pile of art books. Many of them were open to full spreads of well-known works of art. She was studying them. He casually picked up two or three of her books, walked out of the studio, and placed them outside the door. He made several trips before she even noticed what was happening. Uh, what are you doing? She asked. He barely even paused before walking away. But over his shoulder, he said, helping you stop wasting your time. As an observer, I was confused and maybe even a little amused, but I never forgot that scene, and I'll come back to it in a moment. I became my drawing professor's teaching assistant in my sophomore year, and I remained in that job for the next four years because I was on the five-year plan. Drawing studio courses met once a week for eight hours, So I'm going to estimate that I spent at least 850 hours in that room. That's not including the times I returned as a visiting critic after graduating, or a semester I took over his class when he became too sick to continue teaching. All told, maybe a thousand hours. I think I learned more in that room than in any classroom on campus, probably by the very same principle he had introduced to me on day one practice. Today, I want to explore what it means to practice, what there is in repetition that can help us to get better at what we do, sure, but also at who we are. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human. Which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D S G N. T-M-R-R-W You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co and if you want to get in touch directly you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co I'd love to hear from you. And now let's get back to the show. hours in the classroom taught me a valuable lesson you don't learn how to make good things you just make things and you learn how to see which of them are good you learn how to see you can't do that without having made and making takes a lot of time there are no good shortcuts practice is an inherently temporal phenomenon About the girl with the books, I later realized that my professor wasn't against looking at great art, not at all. But he was trying to teach his students to see good art, which is a skill built only by seeing a lot of the opposite, not by looking at images printed in books. We already agree that they are the good ones, otherwise they wouldn't be in these books. But where are the books of rough drafts? Where are the books of bad art? This principle extends well beyond the art studio. Design, for instance. The funny thing about design is that it's kind of like art, but with a thick layer of pedantry over it and an even thicker layer of fear. On the one hand, we celebrate creativity in design. We heap praise on the vision and the style of individuals, but on the other, we feel we must adhere to some quasi-scientific method. Sure, that idea sounds good, but what does the research show? Where's the data? And of course, there's a place for that. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say something controversial, something I can absolutely imagine arguing against in other contexts. And that is that the place for all that, that verificationism, is often not where everyone thinks it is. Sometimes you don't need more facts. Sometimes what you need is more confidence. You need to just do it. You need to believe that your idea is intrinsically worth something, even just a bit of your time, so that you can express it enough to get real feedback. Of course, there's nothing wrong with the rigor that comes with research, with testing, with analytics. We believe that responsible design includes those things for a good reason, because they all compensate for our blind spots and assumptions and subjectivity. But they're not creative. They're actually the opposite. Data are either catalysts or resistors, but they don't actually make work happen. You need to make first so that you have something to put through whatever rigor you feel is necessary to validate that thing. And this gets you out of what is far more common than the impulsive, unvalidated, bad design that we think we're preventing with data, which is unproductive analysis paralysis. There's only so much research you can do before you realize that no amount of research will be enough to produce a perfect thing. You need to make a less than perfect thing, let it be used, gather feedback, and then be willing to remake it. As I was working through these thoughts and preparing to share them with you, something interesting happened. I noticed an alert when I signed into Twitter that somebody had mentioned the show. He and I had a nice exchange and I opened his site to take a deeper look at it later. And when I did, I was scanning through a list of his articles and a title caught my eye. Balancing data with intuition. Well, that's a bit of synchronicity, I thought. And it truly was. I read this article and was amazed by how much alignment there was between what he'd written more than a year ago and what I'd written on the subject back in 2015. See, this episode is based on an article I wrote almost exactly 4 years ago called The Way to Make Good Things is to Make Many Things. But this article did an even better job of making my point, so I'd like to share some of it with you and in doing so to thank the author, John Yablonski, who I hope is in his car right now, listening. Thank you, John. John writes, Data can be problematic if it is misinterpreted or teams become over-reliant on it. We must understand its advantages without allowing it to dictate our decisions, and to do this, we need to balance data with intuition. Instead of treating data as a mandate, we must leverage it as a basis for more design iteration. Data can provide us with helpful insight, but it can't tell the whole story. As a simple example, let's say your analytics indicate that users are dropping off on your product's website before signing up. The data shows that they scroll halfway down the page and then back up to the top before leaving, but we need them to scroll to the bottom in order to find the signup form. Based on the analytics data available, we decide to move the signup form higher up on the page, and we walk away feeling confident that the problem is solved. Soon it's discovered that users are still not signing up, despite seeing the sign-up form. It turns out that the problem is actually how the product's features are described, which lack a clear value proposition for users. This simple example demonstrates how data can fail to tell us the whole story. In this case, it's the message that's being communicated, not the placement of the sign-up form. End quote. End quote. Now, I'll link to John's essay in the show notes, but what John is saying here is that the data can answer questions that start with what, like what do users do when they land on a web page, but they can't answer questions that start with why. Why questions, especially when they're asked about situations relevant to designers, tend to have subjective answers. In John's example, people weren't taking an expected action because they didn't see any good reason why they should. The only way to find that out is to ask. To talk to a real, living, breathing human being. And if that person doesn't have anything to respond to, there's no conversation. Think about that. That means that the best-case scenario for design is one that requires discomfort. For everyone. For designers and for users. It requires that we take a risk and make something based upon what we believe is best. And yes, that includes whatever data we have at that point. And then to put it out there, to let it be seen, to let it be used, and then to put ourselves out there right in front of our first audience and let them tell us just how exactly our rough draft is rough. And then we get to do it again. That repeating cycle, from idea to implementation to response, is the assembly line of design. It's how good things get made. You see, there's no precog magic for proving an idea before you take a risk on it. You have to believe in the idea, act on it, and then measure and be willing to call it a failure. You can't measure what you haven't done yet. Some people call this failing fast, or whatever the Silicon Valley lexicon du jour is. I just call it making. You know, this whole thing, About taking risks, about the discomfort of exposure, about the humbling process of truly receiving feedback, about the work of making something better. It's not just about design. It's not just about art. It's how growth works. It's how we become better. Better individuals and a better people. No matter how we collect or group ourselves. We are all, for better or worse, working on a great design project. We are each other's makers. That is something amazing. Intimidating, sure. But ultimately, the joys and sorrows, the ambitions and fears, the bliss and the suffering, they are all necessary to making this good thing. friends that's all for today i hope you enjoyed this episode of design tomorrow if you did find the show on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review for me launching this podcast was a risk i had an idea an intuition that something like this could be good and so i went with it i liked the first episodes but there were rough edges to them there were mistakes Even now, I notice things I wish I'd noticed back then, that I wish I could change. But the way this works keeps my perfectionism at bay. I have to leave them in the past and let anyone who hears them hear their flaws. But you know what? I'd actually like to hear about those flaws. I'd actually like to hear about what doesn't work for you. Because I know that as much as that might sting in the moment, it's the only way that this thing gets to where I want it to be which is goodness. I just want this thing to be good, to be a good in the world. So you can email me any feedback you have at chris at designtomorrow.co or you can tweet me at designtomorrow. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. Thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.